Dr. Henman has spent nearly 20 years in full-time practice as a psychotherapist and educator. In addition, he has been actively pursuing his own recovery as an adult child for the past 14 years. Cognitive perceptual reconstruction, a therapeutic approach to the treatment of adult children of dysfunction, has been an outgrowth of these years of experience. Dr. Hinman has published several articles on adult children and a chapter with his wife, Sonia, Cognitive Perceptual Reconstruction in the Treatment of Alcoholism. With the help of a steering committee of recovering individuals, he has founded CARE self-help groups. He is currently in full-time practice as a psychologist with Psychological Associates in Modesto. Tonight's presentation, A Developmental View of Addictions, is Lecture 2 of the Journey Series. It is co-sponsored by Psychological Associates and Modesto Psychiatric Center. Dr. Henman will discuss Part 1, Exploring the Roots of Addictions, Part 2, Checking Your Self-Image Thermostat, and Part 3, Who's Driving Your Bus? It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hinman. I'd like to just briefly touch on the wounded child within from last week for those that weren't able to be here to set the stage at looking at the developmental view of addictions. In the first place, we, we have to have a way of learning who we are. And how we learn who we are, the decisions that we make, come from the reflections that we get back from the significant people in our lives. We make decisions based on those reflections. We learn from the environment that we grow up in. We're not talking about blame. We're simply talking about accurately beginning to see the mirror that we have learned from. The purpose is not to judge. The purpose is to accurately be able to have new choices. That's what this talk series is all about, is having new choices for change in the present. Change and blame, like I mentioned last week, do not go together. Instead, change comes out of accurately seeing and in the present using that knowledge differently to make different choices. We talked about how adult children form the personality structure that exists as adults, that they disconnect parts of themselves as they go through life. When the pain gets too great, what happens is that when those parts of self are disconnected, when they're rejected by self, often in the process of trying to stave off the pain, and we saw the picture last time of the, of the kids in the bubbles floating in that pool of shame and pain, and you see the adults struggling so hard to keep that brick wall up. And what happens is that those parts of self that have been rejected stay in that kind of timeless limbo day after week after month after year and as adults 
we still go back and look through those filters even though we're not aware of it. If you have any doubt, you can imagine what my six-year-old inside was doing when people kept coming last week and kept coming and kept coming. And he's going, oh, no! <laughs> you know, this is overwhelming. That was my little six-year-old inside, thinking, I can't give this talk. You know, can you imagine a six-year-old giving a talk in front of however many people were here last week or even how many are here this week? I put my arm around him and said, it's okay, Jimmy, you don't have to. I'll do it for you. And we're going to love each other no matter how it turns out. That's recovery. That is recovery in a nutshell. Dealing with those disconnected parts of self in a different way. Not sending those kids in us to do adult tasks like giving lectures, like trying to drive a car, like trying to, to raise children, like having a marriage and yet that's what happens with adult children is we end up having the kids do the most difficult things because that it's often at those difficult times like getting ready to come up and give the talk last week that before recovery my adult would have left you know and one thing about adult children they tend to be very very responsible so the six-year-old wouldn't have allowed himself to leave so here's the adult taking off to Argentina, <laughs> you know, basking in the sun, and the kid giving the talk, scared to death. You see? That's adult children. And those feelings don't go away. And they still have a, a very profound impact in the present, even though that disconnection may have happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And so to learn to respect and notice when that regression takes place, when suddenly you put on a different set of filters and suddenly things look big. You notice that most furniture and most doors are not made for, for short people. You notice that, that these chairs are not real comfortable for someone about three or four years of age. Our world is not set up for kids. It's just not. And so when you send the kid in you to do a difficult task, it's like two strikes against them. They already are drowning in shame, and this is the one chance. So here's Jimmy, age six, right? Comes up the podium going, if I close my eyes, they won't see me, and I won't make any mistakes. And he gets up there saying to himself, okay, now if I can pass this test, if, catch these words, if I can pass this test, test, then maybe I can begin to like me. Kind of get behind that for a moment. What tests have you taken in the last week since the last talk? And did you say to yourself, only if I do it perfectly can I begin to be lovable, to somehow extract myself from that pool of shame? and to begin to love myself? What tests have you faced in the last week? When have you put your self-esteem on the line internally? No one else may have even noticed it. Probably most of you thought I, I started giving the talk as a 41-year-old adult. And actually I did. But there was a real struggle going on before the talk started. 
I decided, and we decided actually, I would give the talk. And he'd come along and I'd sort of hold his hand from time to time. One thing about adult children is if you aren't seeing your child inside, if you don't have contact with him or her, chances are they're the ones driving the bus. If you can't see them, the chances are in a stressful situation you will become that child. And I mean that very literally. And that's one of the points you need to understand that the, the phrase, I am overreacting, is inaccurate. You're reacting very appropriately for a child of three, five, seven, nine years of age. It's appropriate reaction. Just like when we talked about depression, anxiety, eating disorders, the different addictions that come out of the process of being an adult child, those feelings of emptiness, for example, with depression, may be very accurate. It may be there's no one home inside that you own that you're willing to acknowledge. You've disconnected that part of you, so that part is not available where he or she should have been. So when you begin to recognize that, and you begin to recognize that at the time of the disconnection, it made sense. There's a hundred units of pain coming at you. And if you can just block it off, maybe you can end up with only 40 units of pain. Does that sound like, how many would, would trade 100 units of pain for 40 units? How many of you? That's a pretty good deal. You know, that beats the stock market. <laughs> okay? The trouble, the, the fly in the ointment, the flaw in the plan is the following. That 100 units of pain, very real, very intense, will last for a very short period of time. Minutes, hours, at the most, a day or two. Acute pain will not last very long because it's fluid. As long as it's flowing, it's going to start, and it's going to be there, and it's going to end, like a wave, an ocean wave. How many of you have body surfed? You notice you're not in control of the wave? You know that, don't you? You're not in control of the wave, but the wave has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And in the middle, you're not in control. You're not in control. But that 100 units of pain is for a very short time. Or you can take 40 units of pain for 30 years. Oh, well, picky, picky. If you're going to say it that way, it doesn't sound like such a good deal, does it? 40 units times 365 days times 40 years versus 100 units of pain for six hours. That's the crisis that we're facing in dealing with adult children. Learning that it's okay to deal with the pain, that it's fluid, that it will come and go, rather than trying to block off and disconnect parts of ourselves, reject parts of ourselves, and have those parts floating in a pool of shame forever. Literally forever. We talked about the characteristics of adult children, the fact that they try to act normal. We talked about how lethal that is in terms of being able to own your accomplishments. 
We talk about common styles that adult children take. The little parent, the emotional sponge, the volcano. Those strategies made sense in the original situation. The trouble is when the experience changes, when the environment changes, it no longer makes sense, and yet we still continue to use the same strategies. Why? Because the bridge is out. The line of communication is out between the conscious adult mind of Jim Henman, age 41, and the little boy inside who is driving the bus saying, okay, if I'm perfect enough, and all the rest of the kinds of pressures that little kids put on themselves. Without there being a bridge between the conscious mind of the adult and the wounded parts of self, we cannot update as the environment changes. And you can't build a bridge if you don't even acknowledge that someone exists. That's what happens, is we try to pretend that those wounded parts of ourselves no longer exist. We try to get rid of them. And that trying to get rid of is what I call an autoimmune disease process. It came out of supervision with George and Betty and I think Tandy was there. We were discussing the whole process and somewhere out of that came this autoimmune kind of model. Something that is healthy begins to become unhealthy. The self begins to attack self and destroy self and threaten the life of self. And adult children of dysfunction are suffering from that autoimmune disease. And finally, and probably if there's one thing that I hope you would have gotten from last week, is the importance of a no-fault context for this learning process. No fault in terms of blaming parents and their parents. No fault in terms of blaming yourself for where you are right now. Blame and judgment interfere with the process of recovery. The fact is, each of us is where we are right now. At 10 minutes to 8, we are where we are. Let's celebrate that. Let's accept that. Let's enjoy that we are on the journey, that we are on the path. It doesn't get better than that. It simply doesn't get better than that. That's the best you can get, is enjoying the fact that you started the process. Now, in terms of looking at a developmental view of addictions, which is the talk this evening, and again, I'm not simply talking about chemical dependency, although chemical dependency is a very important social issue. It's a very devastating difficulty. But I'm talking about all of the addictions. The, the workaholic who is trying to go faster than the speed of feelings. You ever think about that with a workaholic? You know, if they go fast enough and they go long enough and they go hard enough, the feelings don't catch up until they have their heart attack. Or until in midlife, he or she says, you know, this ain't no good. This sucks canal water. I quit. And I, I, I dump my spouse and I dump my kids and I dump my job and suddenly I have permission to feel. How about learning to feel before you do the dumping? It's a lot cheaper. <laughs> and it's a lot healthier, you know. Is to do the dumping not of the people you're dancing with, 
to do the dumping of the strategy that created the problem in the first place. It's the strategy that's the difficulty, not the people you're dancing with. But what happens is where those parts of self, those wounded children should be, ideally, in an, in an ideal circumstance, those holes that are left are aching. There's a gnawing, aching kind of feeling where that gaping hole where self should be. And that gaping hole cries out either for some kind of distraction, and some of the addictions have more to do with distraction, or medication, somehow medicating the pain. And the, and the addictions can go into either or both. But it's trying to take care of those parts that have been lost to the, to the whole process of shaming. Now, when you look at some of those common kinds of styles that I talked about, for example, a little parent. What a frustrating job. The whole world is your responsibility. You've got to do it perfectly. You've got to be in control at all times. Do you think maybe you want to break once in a while? Maybe two or three six-packs might take the edge off? You think about that? You know, maybe when you're really wanting to tell your spouse off, suddenly you get hungry and you devour the refrigerator instead just by coincidence. You know, it has nothing to do with the fact you're angry. It just was there, you know? It had your name on it. The kind of pressure the little parent feels cries out for some kind of relief, whether distraction or medication. And there's a lot of anger under that need for perfection. There's a lot of anger under that need for control. And a lot of fear, overwhelming fear that goes with that. And then the fear that someone's going to see the fear, so you can't let anybody get too close. Are they going to see that? And then on top of that, you have the feeling of isolation. On top of all the other pain. Looking at the emotional sponge, where you take all of the, the painful feelings from around you and absorb them into yourself. No wonder some people binge and then purge it back up. At least they're in control for a minute. You know? They stuff it. And they stuff it emotionally. And then they stuff it and they stuff it down in terms of food. And then the release, when they finally reject all that they've been swallowing. Think about that picture when you think of eating disorders. Think of the picture with the bulimic individual who has stuffed their feelings, has rejected themselves and stuffed all those feelings often absorbing many of the feelings in a toxic environment, suddenly their behavior makes sense. It's like, I'm not going to take it anymore. But you know something? As with all of the addictions, there's a punishment built into the release. You see? Because then after the purge comes the self-hatred comes the self-disgust, comes the, the, 
the, the shame which builds to the next round of binging and purging. It's like the shame feeds the next round. It's like the anorexic that, that is trying to, to be invisible and trying to, to somehow still be a little girl. Most commonly, most, most anorexics still are, are female, although you know, in the same way women are getting more lung cancer with smoking more, men, I think, are getting a taste of, of, of anorexia, although still the vast majority, I think, are females. And again, at least there's one thing that they can't make you do. Power! The power of not. No thanks, I'm not hungry. I'm in control of my life. I don't have a trouble. I don't have a trouble at all. Because you can't be too thin or too rich. You know, I have seen anorexics that, that their body image, you need to understand that the body image says, you're fat! You're disgusting! You're unacceptable! Ugh. And if you look at them, they look like they just came out of a concentration camp. You can count the ribs, but they're still having that same kind of abusive commentator that says, you're still taking up too much space. If you eat that, they're going to win. You're going to lose control. And it literally becomes a matter of life and death. Literally a matter of life and death. And those that simply are addicted to food as a way of medicating but don't get into the binging and purging. When they're happy, their best friend is food. When they're sad, their best friend is food. When they're angry, particularly when they're angry, their best friend is food. Food becomes the drug. It becomes the drug. The raging volcano that we talked about last week the person that is so desperately crying out for contact and is so afraid that they have this force field around them. Often again, some addiction, whether it be chemicals, food, work, some way or other, they're going to find a way to distract or medicate. You see? Now, when this begins to form, when you begin to figure out who you are, you begin to have a self-image. How many of you here have a self-image? I left mine in a car, you know? I just, it just, it, it isn't real obedient. <laughs> but what happens is, once you form a self-image, that's what tells you who you are. That tells you what to expect of you. What you'll take from other people, what you'll give to other people. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes, or keep them open, but one or the other. <laughs> and whichever you choose, notice what 
thoughts or images come up when you think of, I am blank. I am, uh, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, I'm, I'm an adult child, I'm a father, I'm a mother. What images come up? I'm nice. I'm friendly all the time. What comes up for you as you begin to think about the self-image that dictates who you are and what your choices are? Take a moment to, pay, to really pay attention to that. It's one of the most powerful elements that you have going for you. And most of us don't really think about what our self-image dictates. The self-image thermostat is a way of visually depicting this. I believe each individual, and I, I made it simple by having it uh, plus 10 to minus 10. In the middle, each of us have a comfort zone, an area that we feel comfortable with. Now, let's say that, let's pretend I've been a codependent a lot of years. Let's just pretend that, okay? That's an easy one to pretend. <laughs> My comfort zone said that I needed to please most of the people most of the time. I would be a chameleon toward other people. So in terms of behavior, if you wanted me to be a certain way, I'd be that way. You want me to be a different way, I'd be a different way. You name it, I would be that. Toward self was basically rejection. Before entering recovery as a codependent, my basic experience of self was that of shame and self-rejection was basically my attitude towards self and my behavior towards self was that of deprivation of self. I would accept from others whatever they give me. If you'll be nice to me, I'll be your friend. You know, what is your self-image? Take a moment and really begin to think about what your self-image thermostat is. What are you comfortable with in that? Once you begin to think about what you're comfortable with, then comes the real kicker. This is, the, this is beautiful. Let's say, now this is a scale that is, that's relative for each individual person. If this was an absolute scale, before entering recovery, I would say my scale was probably down at around my zero point, maybe negative two, negative three. Chronically depressed, chronically anxious, very insecure, very shy. Those are my good points, okay? <laughs> you know, I had to work to get those, right? So if someone was real nice to me, it would become out of my comfort zone. Think about that. When you think of your self-image, if someone is too nice, too intimate, too friendly, what happens? You find the flaw to get back into the comfort zone. If someone is too nasty, too mean, there comes a point where you grow a backbone. 
right? How many of you get real upset about the temperature in a room but don't change the thermostat setting? That's how I did it, and that's how most of us do it emotionally. We don't change the setting. Recovery is a matter of, of changing the setting on the thermostat. We didn't even know we could do that. You know, we thought, well, I'm, my self-image is an issue of height, not weight. I'm a certain height. My self-image is a certain way. That's who I am. That's how I am. No, that's not accurate. The fact is we can begin to change how we see ourselves, but it does take some direct kinds of intervention, some direct work. What happens if you don't change the thermostat setting is that you will continually feel a tension to get it back the way it was. And that's one of the reasons in, for example, chemical dependency, there is such an important difference between being dry and being sober. Dry doesn't touch the thermostat setting. Sober begins to move it in a more positive direction. And recovery simply continues that movement into the positive numbers. If you don't change the setting, you're going to be always fighting that kind of tension. It isn't enough to simply stop drinking, stop using drugs, stop gambling if you're a compulsive gambler. That, those are important points. And if you are a compulsive gambler, you do need to stop gambling. If you do have a chemical dependency problem, you do need to enter sobriety. You need to stop using those drugs and all drugs, all mind-altering drugs. However, if you don't begin to change your self-image, it's just a matter of time and pressure to get back the way it's familiar. I talked last week about the addiction to the familiar, underlying all of the addictions, underlying a lot of what helps people that are chronically depressed or chronically anxious, is that it is familiar. It's a familiar feeling to be depressed. It's not that you like being depressed. It's just part of the self. That's who I am. It's like I'm shy or I'm nice. What a drag being nice all the time. It's nice to be nice, but it's also nice to have other choices. And what I've found a lot in working over the years with people is that they have a very limited number of choices. What I often talk about is that when are you going to grow your backbone? After you fall out of love with your partner? I'm talking like with codependence. Do you grow the backbone after you stop caring? After the spark is dead? Or do you grow the backbone before? Where something can still happen to the relationship? Think about that. Think about that process for a moment. Where is your thermostat setting right now? Where would you like it to be? Embrace the reality that you have a choice. You don't even have to know how to embrace that choice. You simply need to embrace the choice. The how is easier than the choice. 
the choice is the hard part. That's something that I can't provide. That's something that the staff at MPC can't provide. That's something that no change agent or self-help group can provide, is the choice of taking the step. That is something only each individual person can do. If you like what your self-image is, if you like where your thermostat is set right now, fantastic. That's great. I like where my setting is right now. It's not perfect. It's continuing to move. It's fluid. It's growing. But right now, today, on the 5th of July, I like it where it is because that's where it is. And I celebrate that. I, you know what I did? I used to steal money as a kid to buy ice creams for the kids so they'd like me. I'll never forget at Lincoln School in Modesto at a ham dinner when this girl came up and my mom was there and my dad was there and my sister and brother were there she said, gee Jim, thanks for the ice cream and I went, ah, no, you know, I was not independently wealthy, you know, I was like, you know, third grade, right? And my folks looked at me Ice cream? Oh yeah, Jim buys ice cream for all the kids. You know, if I could have been invisible right then, I would have. I was just a dying inside. That's behavior. I was buying friendship and it never, ever worked. I'll tell you a little story about self-image. I had two experiences over the holiday between last talk and this one, both that really speak to the essence of my recovery. The first was the fact that I got my six-year-old, along with, my, with his grandparents, got a basketball pole and hoop and backboard. You all know what those look like. And you realize they come in boxes, <laughs> you know, with instructions written in Yugoslavian, <laughs> with one page missing. You know, I grew up with an image of myself that I could do nothing with my hands. And I have incredible proof that that's inaccurate. <laughs> Everything I'd approach is like, and Sonia got to where she didn't even want to work with me. Like, all right, I'm going to try this. And then when it screws up, it's not my fault. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to hire somebody. But I decided I was going to put this pole in the ground. <laughs> 700 pounds of cement later, <laughs> you know, 700 pounds, it's not quite plumb, <laughs> it's not perfectly plumb. If I think about that pole, I get misty. I put that pole up with my sons. I did that. That's recovery. I don't care if it's a little out of plumb. There's no doubt that their grandpa could have made it perfectly plumb. He has different issues. My issue was taking my own two hands, digging a hole, putting the pole in there, wrestling the cement, mixing it, and my kids going, gee, Dad, we did it. That is recovery. The other thing is the 4th of July, yesterday. How many of you really like setting off firecrackers and fireworks and you know those things that go boom? 
How many of you really enjoy the process of lighting them? You're welcome next year. <laughs> I hate it. You know, as you know, I'm in recovery, not recovered. I tried it, and I'm like this, you know, knowing that I'm going to lose my eye or my hand or both, feeling stupid at being scared. Now, that's a real accepting attitude. You notice how that really helps my, my emotional thermostat, my self-image thermostat move along? And then I said to myself, forget it. Grandpa likes doing it. Thank God for Grandpa. You know? And so he lit the fireworks, and I sat back, and I enjoyed it. Look at the difference between the two experiences. One was a lot of hard work and 700 pounds of concrete, and I chose to do it. The other, in one way, was no big deal. I mean, we aren't talking firecrackers or cherry bombs here. We're talking safe and sane implements of destruction. <laughs> I don't like them. <laughs> And I respected my little kid when he said, are we having fun yet? <laughs> I don't like this. So in both examples, I believe my recovery was advanced. When you're really thinking about recovery, it's those little things. It's choosing to be on a baseball team called Just Friends in the E-League out at uh, the Rainbow Fields, playing right field as an adult because I'd gotten an F in PE, forging. <laughs> and if you've seen my handwriting, you know, there's no way it could have been my mom's handwriting. But please excuse Jimmy from PE uh, for some stupid reason. The reason was I didn't want to get hit by the ball. I couldn't catch the ball. How many of you can catch a baseball? You're the ones I hated. <laughs> You're the ones that were picked. <laughs> I've, I forgave you for learning to catch, okay? But I went out there, I'd stand in right field saying, oh, Lord, I still, same thing I did when I was like seven years old, please don't hit me the ball. But the difference was, I still dropped it, you know, most of the time. But I didn't hate myself when I dropped it. That's recovery. There aren't perfect endings that say you enter recovery and you learn to play outfield and catch the ball. You still miss the ball in recovery. The difference is I didn't hate me for that. And I kept playing with that team until we started winning. Do you know what happens when you start winning? You get serious. Do you know what's happening when you get serious and you're the worst player on the team? <laughs> it became harder and harder for me to go out there and it got to the same point with the fireworks. I said, I'm not having fun anymore. Now as a codependent, I think any of you that have it, probably none of you here are codependent, but you probably know someone who is. Ask them how hard it would be to say to the team, you know, you guys are doing a good job. I don't want to play anymore. I would have sold my left arm to get somebody to play with me, to let me be included growing up. And I said, I don't want to play anymore. This isn't fun. 
That's recovery also. Recovery isn't the big dramatic things. Recovery is the little things. And I want you to be thinking about the behaviors towards yourself. A lot of times it's self-inflicting harm. The behaviors toward others, how you treat other people, how you accept treatment from other people, how you feel about yourself, how you feel toward other people, and what you'll accept from others. There's a lot of people, myself included, that would take a lot of abuse before entering recovery. Verbal abuse, not physical, but, but verbal. Anymore, no thanks. Either you treat me respectfully or you don't treat me. I care more about me now than I care about your caring about me. Now, that's not self-centeredness. It's recovery. It doesn't mean I don't care about you. Here's the difference. I tend to make very fine distinctions. I care about Mike, but I care more about my relationship with my kids inside, the wounded parts of me, than I care about Mike caring about me. It's not a lack of caring for Mike. It's moving it in the proper direction. I'm going to go into that more in a little bit when we talk about codependency. How do you talk to yourself? Your internal dialogue. What is your commentator saying to yourself? The tone of voice you use in talking to yourself. Is it nurturing and warm? You dummy! What do you do with a clipboard on your lap? You know, I mean, you take your inventory? You know, what are you doing holding a tape recorder on your lap? Shame on you! You know, you How do you talk to yourself? Usually we stop paying attention. We don't even listen, and yet it still has the impact. What kind of talking do you do toward other people? Are you someone that tends to try to push people away by being aggressive and, and hurtful? Or are you more like I was, that you just sort of do anything to get people to like you? And what are you willing to accept from other people in terms of how they talk to you? I want you to begin thinking about all of those different dimensions. If you like what you see, wonderful. If you don't like what you see, that's okay. Because you can begin to make the change right now. And the first step is saying, I don't like what I see. But I choose to care about me in the process of changing it. Do you hear the difference? I care about me and therefore I'm going to change it rather than, I'll change it and then I'll like me. The difference is the difference between success and failure in recovery. Now what happens when you really begin to see yourself more accurately <clears throat> is that often you start feeling guilt and there's always an overabundance of shame to start with. <clears throat> Guilt is a healthy feeling reaction to going the wrong direction in the present. It says turn around. It's like the, the brake light on your car. When it's, when it's on, it tells you to check and take the emergency brake off. If you don't do that, you're going to burn up your brakes. If your oil light comes on, it says pull over to the side of the road, check your oil level. Those are not bad signals. 
where guilt becomes a problem is when you're feeling guilty about past stuff. You see? I would like you all to do something for a moment. I'd like you all to not do what you did at lunch. You know what you did at lunch. I want you to not do it. Okay? You're willing to do that, aren't you? Don't be so resistive. You know, this is for your own good. Don't do what you did at lunch today. At lunch. Think about that. That's what guilt is saying. I shouldn't have done it. And I feel badly about it. That's not guilt. Guilt says you're going the wrong direction. Usually, in dealing with addictions, like on the unit, people start feeling bad as they get healthier. You know? When the medication of the drugs and the alcohol or the, or the eating disorder or whatever the addiction happens to be that they're working with, now they're seeing more accurately and now they're going to beat the snot out of themselves. Clinical talk. And as if that's not bad enough, they're going to add shame. And that's saying that I'm a bad person. I hate me. I did bad things while I was practicing my addiction and I feel bad about me. I reject me because of what I did. When do you start to think about that? When you're going in a healthier direction. Guilt isn't going to make sense if you've already turned around and gone a different direction. What does make sense is regret. And it's a feeling that we often misunderstand and mislabel. Regret is a healthy grieving. <clears throat> when I think about the things I did in my non-recovery, I feel bad about it. When I think of some of the people that I've hurt in the course of my life, I feel badly about that. I wish it hadn't happened. I feel badly, and I feel good that I feel badly. Because regret is what fuels the change process. Regret is what gives you the motivation <clears throat> to do the hard work, to exercise the flabby muscles of healthy thinking and recovery. It doesn't happen by chance. Regret is what you want more of. It says, I feel badly and I choose differently. I choose sobriety if it's chemical dependency. I choose to listen to the emotional hunger if it's an eating disorder. I choose to find my excitement and intimacy if it's gambling and that kind of incidence hunger with gambling. If it's depression, that I'm going to learn to nurture myself. I'm going to learn to see myself as someone that can have fun, have some animation. If it's anxiety, learning to get past the scare and the fear. I want to see a lot of regret. I like regret. Not because I like to see people hurt, but that connects them with their experience, and that's when change can take place. Change is not an intellectual process. It's a total body experience. And if you don't have those feelings of regret, the chances are you're leaving out a real significant part 
and the chances of relapse, of reverting back, is very great. So celebrate the bad feelings. Enjoy the bad feelings. They're yours. You earned them. <laughs> you know? Cash them in in the process of change. Feel them and let them go. Feel them and let them go. You can't let go until you feel them. Feel them and let them go. What is an addiction? Addiction is to have given oneself up to a practice or habit and being unduly dependent on it. Almost anything could be an addiction. Some things, sexual addiction, just another example, uh, I mentioned before eating disorder and many other ones. It becomes an organizing principle in your life to which you grow a tolerance, the ability to take more and more of something before having a reaction. Codependence, for example, don't usually start out in real, real abusive relationships. They work up to it. They, they build up their tolerance to abuse. Think about that. Relationships unfold in their abuse, usually. It doesn't usually start out as abusive. It, it happens over time. The same with chemical dependency. The same with the frequency of binging and purging with eating disorders. You get a greater and greater tolerance. And there's withdrawal. The craving, the longing for that toxic substance or that toxic thing. The feeling that something is missing. The addiction to the familiar. That's the underlying element across all of these different kinds of problems is the addiction to the familiar. I think the very best example that I've ever come across to illustrate addiction, it comes from the big book. Any of you familiar with that, the big book? It's not a plug. It is, but don't, don't notice it as a plug. The jaywalker, familiar with that story? The jaywalker in the big book? Oh, for those of you that aren't, I'm going to share you. This, to me, captures addiction. This guy likes to jaywalk. That's his addiction. No big deal. He just has this compulsion to jaywalk. So what does he do? He jaywalks at every opportunity. And one day, he gets hit by a car and breaks his arm. Goes to the hospital, gets a fix, comes out. And they say, boy, you've learned your lesson, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Goes out. Jaywalks, breaks his legs. His friends say, well, now you've learned your lesson, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. In the wheelchair. He's still jaywalking until he's hit by the Mack truck and he's cured of his addiction. The only cure for addiction other than recovery is death. That may sound like a very harsh statement, but I really believe that because of the very process that goes into it. The, the investment that we have in that process, the organizing principle involved in it. Now, I don't, when I say recovery, I don't mean that there's only one kind of recovery. There's many different forms of recovery. But if there isn't some change of mind some change of that emotional and self-image thermostat called recovery, the only way out of an addiction is going to be death. At least for what we know. We don't know what happens after death. Anyone that does can speak up. 
In terms of codependency as a particular addiction, I really get upset uh, with a lot of the self-help literature because to hear people talk, codependency is the fact that you care too much about other people. You hear that a lot. You know, she just cares too much. He just cares too much about other people. He's always trying to do good things for him. He's, she's always trying to, to make everybody feel good. What's wrong with that? You know, we could use more of that. We could use more of people caring about how other people feel. The problem of codependency is not, is not caring too much about other people. The issue of codependency is not caring about self. Make that real clear. Because I have, hold your seats. This next picture is one of my all-time favorites. My brother-in-law drew this, and he's going to kill me for having said that out loud, but that's too bad. This is codependency, folks. Two people going scuba diving with one tank. You notice the grip on the arm of the person that doesn't have a tank? That's called smart. Because if that air mouthpiece is taken away, the other person's going to die. Death seems to me worthy of getting upset about, doesn't it to you? If you were about 20 feet underwater, wouldn't you be real preoccupied with where the other person was? If they had your tank? It's functional. It makes sense. The question is, why are you diving in the first place without a tank? Right? That's the real question. Once you're under the water, all the rest of the codependent behavior makes perfect sense. The over-control, the over-preoccupation, all of that makes perfect sense. All the symptoms that, uh, uh, that you read about in self-help books, to me, they're not pathology. If you're 20 or 30 feet underwater, it's functional. The problem is going down without a tank in the first place. It's the lack of relationship with yourself. Once you begin to realize that difference, then what you do about it begins to make sense. You begin to deal with those gaping holes inside that are creating that lack of an oxygen tank. An oxygen tank. Again, you notice, as per last week, I wanted to make at least one mistake during the talk. That was it, in case you missed it. <laughs> We're modeling imperfection here. I just threw that in. If you are struggling with codependency, and I have yet to find someone with chemical dependency that, did, that also doesn't struggle with codependency, and I've yet to find somebody with either of those two problems that doesn't also struggle with adult child issues. Now, there may be someone in Cleveland or, you know, Baltimore that, that doesn't fit this, but other than a few rare examples, that's the case. There are two kinds of codependency. The one we normally think of, which is the overt codependency, where you try to fill that vacuum left by the rejection of self with other people, with other relationships. That's, that's the kind that I was. That's the most common one. That's the one that the books are written about. There's another kind, and I really want you to understand this. That's the covert codependency. That's the person who is being more abusive 
in the relationship that shows a lack of concern, a lack of caring about the partner until the partner grows a backbone. And suddenly they come with all their dependency and they beg and they plead for another chance. You notice that? Have you noticed that pattern? They look as if they're not invested in the relationship. They usually have some other form of addiction until the person grows a backbone. And when they grow a backbone, suddenly that underlying codependency comes up to the surface. And it's really pitiful because your, 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 your straightforward card-carrying codependent has years of practice, you know? The person that's really in a heap of hurt is that person who's the covert codependent. It's not used to it. And suddenly that little kid comes welling up inside and is totally petrified at the notion that the partner is going to leave them. So you need to grow that backbone. You need to grow it now, before it's too late in the relationship, if possible. Because what you'll often find is that underneath all that lack of caring is a lot of dependency on the relationship on the part of the other person. Now, the impact of codependency. You notice last time I talked about that I really don't like black or white, all or nothing. I really have problems with that. All codependents don't have the same. That concludes disc A. Please insert disc B.